I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 126. Today in the show, Dan and I are celebrating the whitetail rut by examining and discussing exactly how we hope and plan to kill a rutting buck here in the coming days. Hey guys, quick update before we get things kicked off today. In addition to our main conversation that Dan and I are going to have about the rut today, we're also going to have a special bonus at the end of this episode related to a gear question that we get frequently, and that's about using ozone to reduce scent. And we've gotten so many questions about this technology, and we wanted to cover it in a way that's a little more comprehensive than just me and Dan sharing our own experiences. So if you're one of those people interested in ozone or ozonics, stick around after the normal interview for a bonus discussion with Buddy Pylon. That said, on to the show. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, with the whitetail rut kicking off all across the country, Dan and I are going to make some predictions. Or at least we're going to try to make some predictions, I guess, by way of explaining our plans and strategies and hopes and dreams for the 2016 rut. And hopefully that'll be a prediction, a true prediction when it's all said and done. So today we're diving into how we're planning on killing a buck during this year's rut. But before we get into that, Dan, in one word, how would you describe your feelings about the whitetail rut? chaos man like yeah in one word right yes oh i like it chaos that's pretty chaos good. chaos but in a way it's it's not as chaotic as i think we think it is right what do you mean by that i mean so when we think the rut we think of deer chasing deer all over the place but at the same time it's not like these does are leading these bucks miles and miles and miles. I mean, it may be in some states, in some cases, let's say like Kansas, right? Where the deer travel is high. 
mm-hmm. but I'm talking about where me and you hunt in Ohio, Michigan, Iowa, you know, we're hunting timber and egg, right. And a yeah. mixture of that stuff. So it's chaotic, meaning that a, a buck could push a doe into a different location and you may not see them, but at the same time, these doe groups that are coming in and out, you know, they're, they're traveling to the, the best food store source. It's chaotic because anything can really happen. But at the same time, there's, there's, there's some way to still maybe potentially pattern a big buck, if that makes sense. Right. Right. You can, you can try to put some order to the chaos. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I agree. I agree. It's like, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right word for this. It's um, not staccato, but, um, but maybe it's like I feel like the rut is this periodic bursts of chaos inter right. or, or it's long stretches of what I would refer. If I had to choose one word for the rut, I would call it a grind. And yeah. so I'd say long stretches of a grind, a marathon of being out in the tree for a long, long period of time interspersed with these bursts of chaos that um, that then we try to bring order to with some type of strategy or plan. But man, I, I, that the grind is how I think about the rut. I think about it is this marathon of sorts that just simply can require you to gut it out, to grind it out. And it's my favorite time of year and my least favorite time of year (laughs) in some ways. I don't know about you, but like when I think about the rut, I have this like slight sense of foreboding right now because I can see it, you know, it's, it's when this podcast goes, you know, when people are actually listening to this podcast, we're recording this in late October. So pre-rut recording this, but when this is actually being listened to you guys right now, we're in the midst of it. And during that time period, you know, those are the longest days of the year for me and you most of the time, you know, I'm waking up like my typical rut vacation, as you know, Daniel, I'm waking up at like 3am in the morning, either in Ohio or Michigan or wherever I'm hunting, driving to a property getting into a tree stand an hour and a half before daylight. And then I'm sitting in that stupid tree for like 13 hours, getting down, going back to a dirty cheap hotel and then working for a couple hours at night and then getting to bed at like midnight and waking up three or four hours later and doing the whole thing over again day after day after day. And it's the best thing. It's so awesome. We live for it. But at the same time, I know my psyche and my soul will slowly be dying too. (laughs) Right. Right. I don't know. Do you ever lose weight during the, during the rut? So it's interesting. I actually usually put on weight a little bit during the hunting season. I don't know specifically during the rut, but I'm, I usually get in pretty good shape in the summer and leading into like an elk hunt or Western hunts and stuff. Like I lost like 16 or like 15 or 16 pounds um, from this summer up until after my elk hunt. But I then, you know, once we get into the serious whitetail hunting time frame, I just don't have as much time to work out. And because you've got these early mornings, late nights, you know, especially with my travel, when I'm staying, you know, in a random place, I end up eating more junk food and fast food right. and stuff. So that ends up being bad for me. So I probably add a couple pounds, not a lot, but a couple. What about you? Oh, I, I tend to lose, let's say between five and 10 pounds between because for some reason you know if if you go to a gas station let's say in between a a move right let's say okay i'm gonna get down i'm gonna go hunt a different place in the evening then you go to the gas station and you buy the apple pies and the snickers bars and and the pop right all that sugar jacks you up but then you just feel 
after that sugar rush, right, it goes down. And I hate that feeling. Yeah. I hate that feeling of being tired and not focused. So I really try to eat like carrots and, and apples or not bring anything into the tree with me because except water. And then I'll just, you know, force feed myself, you know, stuff my face at night when I get home. But I feel that, you know, like if I eat healthy in the stand, I feel better. And yeah, I may be tired at times, but when the moment of truth comes or I see a buck, I, my focus is on point because of my diet. I don't know. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I think you're onto something though. And I actually got to tell you, I have finally begun to feel my age, Dan. I've got a big change happening. (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. I, uh. I'm starting to feel crappy after eating crappy food. Like, you know, forever I could eat a whole pizza or eat McDonald's or Taco Bell or whatever, and I'd be fine. I'd be right as rain. But more recently, this this past year, I feel like when I start eating a bunch of that stuff, I'm kind of feeling lousy afterwards. So I'm thinking I'm going to start picking up a better diet during the rut this year because I just don't want to feel cruddy. And each you can't afford to really, and you don't want to get Facebook shamed by all the listeners. <laughs> Do you? Oh my gosh! Last I remember year. that. Like, oh, are you really going to eat that? You know how bad that is for you. Yank, yank. Like, <laughs> okay, mom. There were like twenty-five people just ragging on me because I posted a picture of the junk food I was packing for the rut trip. Oh man, it was brutal. It was really however, brutal. you know. However, that was enough sugar in like a. Uh, one month time to give you diabetes. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit rough, but but this year will be a little different. I'm gonna try right. to try to eat a little better in the day, and then also to try to save a little money instead of going out to eat at night for you know this for like my Ohio trip. Um, thinking about like packing a bunch of frozen meals, like pre-make some food here, and then like make them in the crock pot or something or in the microwave oh, yeah. or whatever when we get to the hotel. Um, so going to try to do that this year a little bit just to make things a little bit easier there. Right. So, so yeah, that's that's the game plan for food. <laughs> what's your what's your schedule like? I mean, you, I mean, you're going to hunt Michigan obviously and you're going to hunt Ohio. Um, yeah. Yeah. What are you like obviously the bigger deer are down in Ohio, right? And I have a feeling you're going to be spending some time down there. Yeah. As, as much as possible or what, you, what, you, what are you looking like? Yeah, we haven't really talked about this yet to this point um, in too much detail. So, um, you know, my game plan has been to hold off on hunting Ohio as long as I possibly can because like, I've kind of found that there just is not a whole lot of activity on this farm um, until the rut. There's not a – like this area doesn't hold a very large population of deer. Um so at a, at the very best, there might be like one buck on the farm um, from like August until the rut. Like literally, there'll be almost no pictures. Like for example, since we, um, you know, I had a bunch of summer pictures down there. Since we went there in August, mid-August, I have only had, th- well, I've had three different shooters pop up on camera, but it's been like three times between the middle of August and now. Um, right. Let me take that back. There was. Two bucks showed up once each in September. And then in October, I had one of those bucks show up once more. And then I've had two other bucks show up one time each um, so yeah. far from what I've seen on trail camera. But, I mean, it, very, very sporadic, very rare. It's not like I never, ever get pictures during this early part of the season, um, you know, like f- frequently. 
there's no bucks right. that like show up on camera every couple days or once a week or anything like that. It's just, it's a weird farm. It's small. There's not a ton of, you know, there's not a whole lot to it. Um, but it's just positioned well for the rut. So once you know, late October, early November arrives, then you get these bucks that come cruising and because of the position of the property, they come cruising through. So all that said, I've held off on hunting really at all. I hunted opening weekend in September and now my game plan is to go back for a big rut trip, but I'm planning on doing it later this year than I have some other years. Right. And the reason for that, excuse me, you know, barring some kind of change, if there's like a major, major weather thing going on that tells me like I got to get down there, I might change it up. Right. But my game plan right now is to hunt, you know, the end of October and the beginning of November. So, you know, that time frame that, you know, I'm sorry, it's kind of weird our time frame right now. We're talking about the past, but it's it's the future for you and me, but it's the past right. for the listeners. <laughs> right, right. But that time frame, I'm planning on hunting in Michigan. And I've got several properties here in Michigan that I'm hunting, trying to kill, you know, a number of these different bucks that we've talked about. Um, but I think I'm probably going to head down to Ohio sometime between the 7th and somewhere between the 6th and the 8th, probably heading down to Ohio and hunting that second week of November. And the reason why I'm erring towards the later part of that peak rut time period that usually I hunt is that the biggest factor for me down there is weather. I mean, we've talked about it a lot. I want those cold fronts and because that property is pretty far south, it's in southern Ohio, it's usually a lot warmer down there than Michigan or anywhere else. So the chances of having warm, lousy weather are better down there um, than you know when I hunt in Michigan. So I'm trying to have the best possible chance of getting some cold weather by waiting till that second week. Right. And in Ohio, their gun season does not open up till December. So I could get down there on November 10th and hunt that, you know, five, six, seven, eight days. And if I were in Michigan on the 15th, gun season opens and all hell breaks loose. And basically your chances of killing a good buck, um, you know, disappears unless you're just out there on opening day and catch one run around. So I can hunt in Ohio though, and keep hunting right through that time period. So I could hunt the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, whatever, and it'll be just great. So that's what I'm thinking. Hopefully I can get it done in Michigan earlier. And then we'll hunt that second to third week in Ohio. And just between weather and trail camera pictures in past years, that has always shown me the best activity down there. And um, so that's my game plan. I'm going to hunt, you know, like I do just about every year. As much as I possibly can, I'm going to hunt, you know, the full day, all day when I'm down there. And then, um, you know, see what happens. Like I said, those hunts are grinds. But, um, But that's... From a schedule standpoint, that's the game plan. Um, right. We talked a little bit a couple episodes ago, you and me, about your vacation days off during the rut a little bit. Right. Yep. But but talk to me again a little bit more about, A, how many days, and then how you're tentatively planning on splitting those up between your different properties. Right. Well, it's kind of it's kind of weird, right? So right now I have three weeks of vacation banked for – uh, hunting related activities. Now, um, I already have scheduled off the seventh. So that second week in November, that's off right now, depending on what the weather tells me, um, I have to be home for October 31st for, um, 
Halloween for Ava and take her the kids trick or treating. Um, this is something that my wife wants and I want to participate in. And so I might be able to get out around here for that, but for sure the second week off. Now I have another week to play around with because I'm trying to save, I'm trying to save a week for, uh, the ATA show, right? Go there, do some business, but I have five extra days. I don't know if I want to put that on towards the end of the first week and then a little bit towards the beginning of the following week or take off the entire second and third week of November. Like, I don't know. I just, it's tough because in the past I'm starting to realize that I, I, I don't think that there, there is as much movement at, on the first week as opposed to the third week. Right. So I think that this year, the, just the way everything lies, the the second and third week are going to be better for me in November. So you you think that you get better activity that third week versus the first? You're saying because I because right. I've always my traditional view has always been that third week you're starting to get into that lockdown period in some areas. Are you are you seeing something different? I think that the lockdown period is happens more than it. God, Okay, it, this is a this is a term. The lockdown is a term for, you know, it, it's kind of hard because I feel it's a general term. You know, lockdown. Is it is it lockdown for who? Is it lockdown for the does moving? Is it lockdown because your target buck has found a doe? Is it lockdown all deer have stopped moving? Well, because. Go ahead. I was going to say, I guess, let me define lockdown for, for how I'm defining it at least. So what I'm referring to is the, so right, the rut, if we're talking about the rut, let, we'll talk about breeding. Right. And so let's think about breeding dates. And so the number of does that are being bred starts low. And then as we move through November, it gets higher and higher and higher until you reach a peak. And according to a lot of things I read, November 15th or somewhere in mid-November is like the average most common peak breeding date. So that's when the most does in the area are being bred. And then it slowly goes down throughout the back end of the month, somewhere, give or take, around mid-November. So it's like a bell curve. So the lockdown period, as I'm defining it, would be that period when the highest number of does are being bred. Because at that point, so let's just hypothetically call it like a three or four day period when the highest percentage of does are being bred. At that time period, if a doe's being bred, that means she is with a buck, and that buck has took her into some deep cover, and they're just kind of hunkering down. You know, when they're actually getting down to breed, the buck likes to keep her in one place as best as possible, back in cover. And so when that happens, when the highest percentage of does are being bred, that means the highest percentage of that pair, the buck and the doe, are hunkered down and covered, taking care of their thing for 24 hours or something. So that three- to four-day time period, or give or take, you know, is when I think – the most people would refer to that as that lockdown period because there's more deer breeding than chasing around and looking for something to breed. So that's what I'm right. talking about. Sorry, right. continue with what you're going with. No, and you're fine, and that's good that you brought that up because there is – imagine a line with three points on it, right? The point in the center is – let's say the peak breeding, which you're considering a lockdown, but you're not going to not hunt that just because the deer are, are locked down. That's when you're going to catch a big buck 
breaking off of a doe that may be let, – let's say, for example, the 15th is the the peak breeding season and the most deer are getting bred on the 15th or within 24 hours, you know, the 14th, 15th, and 16th. Yes. You're going to still want to be in the timber at that time. Definitely. And I, st- I still feel that that time is still better than potentially a buck – cruising for his very first doe which you know it's it's hard because you know on on this podcast we talk to a lot of experts who say that as soon as uh, a buck strips his velvet he can start breeding and based on that bell curve today's the 19th there are deer right now that are being bred somewhere in you know on this bell curve there's deer being bred right now there's does and bucks that are breeding. So, so it, it's hard to, it's hard to say, I mean, you, you just got to find where those does are and be in the woods because when that big buck breaks away from a doe, he's already bred. He's still fire fired up and looking for that next doe. Very true. Very true. And and that's an important point, whether it comes to the lockdown phase, you know, quote unquote, or when we start talking about the timing of the rut, you know, there's all the debate about the different theories about what, you know, what might influence the timing of the rut and if it's a moon thing or photo period thing or whatever. We've all heard the different theories. We've all talked about them. Um, but to this point, no matter what phase of the rut, no matter what day of the rut, is, if you are hunting sometime around the rut period, so we'll just say sometime in November, hypothetically, or late October or November, if you're hunting, or if you have the opportunity to hunt, you just got to be out there because anything can happen. Right. Whether it's, you know, whether it's hypothetically supposed to be a great rut day based on the moon chart you look at, or if it's a lousy warm day in a period of the rut that's supposed to be a lockdown, you know, don't get too caught up on what the experts say. (laughs) And this is coming from someone who's trying to tell you maybe what would be a good idea or not a good idea to do. So maybe you shouldn't even listen to me. Um, but you just got to be in a tree, you know? Well, let's talk, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about those guys out there who have the, the maybe five days that they can dedicate to a hunt. And, you know, it sucks for me and you because we don't hunt the South. And I feel like those guys are getting gypped when we talk about this, because I really don't, I mean, I know that there's some places in the South where the rut's in January, the rut's even in December. Um, and then there's places where it's the exact same time as the North, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't have any experience hunting in the South and maybe we should get a guy on sometime who can talk about that in a little bit more detail. Yeah. But, but for the North and the listeners in the North, what do you, what do you feel would be the best five day period for this year? You know, this year, in ex- as an example, I know a lot of guys want to want to take a Monday through Friday off because then they get two weeks, right? They can, or excuse me, they get two weekends to mess around with. Right. If they go, let's say, for example, Wednesday the ninth to Wednesday the sixteenth, they're taking off, uh, you know, five days, but only getting one weekend. Right. Right. Yeah. So, interesting question. It's the question for a lot of people. Um, this is what I'd say. If I was able to see a weather forecast now for all of November, that would help me make the best decision. But 
for me, if I had to pick my absolute like favorite time period on average, if I took a look at all my hunting seasons and had to pick, it's usually somewhere around that, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, somewhere around there. One of those days almost always is really good. If you get some decent weather in that time period, you've got a great chance. I feel like almost always you're going to be getting some of that chasing or cruising activity. There will be some deer getting bred, but there's definitely going to be some does and estrus. There's definitely going to be some action during that time period somewhere in there. So if I had to just pick a five-day time period to take my vacation days this week, it would be that 7th through the 11th because that would allow you to hunt the 5th through the 13th, which like you can't go wrong with that week there. There's going right. to be good stuff happening that week. Um, right. Even if you know, this, is, this has been a big lesson learned for me last year and I want to get back to you what you think about those dates too but really quickly a big lesson learned from me last year was to not get too worried about the weather during the rut because the weather mm -hmm. definitely will help you have it better like if you get a good cold front in the rut it can make it awesome but right. you still can have success with the warm weather because last year when I was in Iowa I got really down on myself because there was like a four-day stretch that was going to be in like the high 70s or something like that it was like super hot from November right. I can't remember what the dates were the third through the sixth or something like that um, so I kind of got down on myself I didn't hunt a couple mornings because I was I was dealing with some other stuff I went home for like half a day I went home for a day and then came back and just was like, and nothing's going to happen these couple days. So I just didn't do some of the things I guess I should have. But while I was dicking around, not hunting the rut quite like I should have during those three days, three days in a row, each of those days was super hot. Three of my friends killed really great bucks in the morning. So it was right. like Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. Each day was a hot day, but they still killed those bucks cruising in the morning. And it was like, man, what, why was I so down? You can still kill these bucks during this time period. Um, right. You just got to be in a tree. Now, yes, you're probably not going to see the midday activity like you would. Um, you're probably not going to see as much activity as you would, but it's certainly still possible. So just be in a tree. Whatever time frame you have, stick it out in the tree as much as you possibly can. Don't get too concerned with all the, you know, we talk so much about the moon and rising pressure and cold fronts and wind speed and moon phase and blah 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 all these different things that can lead to a better or worse hunt those things matter but at this time you know you don't need to throw it out the window but do not let that stuff keep you from hunting during the run. right right i agree a hundred percent i think that that's where people start to get over it this whole you know barometric pressure we're we're, we're overthinking it if our equation doesn't need to have a certain variable in it to let us go out and hunt. We don't need to, we don't need to take that variable into consideration. Example, like what you just said, pressure, moon phase, temperature. If it's the rut, you get out in your best stands and you hunt. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff's much more applicable in like the early season or yeah. as you're going through October or when you get to the late season and you're just hoping to find that one day that Mr. Big's going to step out during daylight, I think that's right. when that stuff really matters. But when it comes to the rut, it's just be there. So, right. but, but all that said, I guess, what are your five days? What would you take off if you could just choose five? I guess yeah, you I kind think of I'm, told us, but. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. I'm lucky I'm going to get some more days to play with, but for sure the 7th through the 11th. That's Those are the days where – Historically, I've had 
great encounters anywhere from the fifth to the, you know, the 13th. I've had great encounters. Maybe actually my very best day of hunting ever. I can remember this was November 11th, uh, one year. And I saw four mature bucks and I'm talking all four year olds, all, you know, they were all four or one was a three year old and three, four year olds all chasing one doe. And that was an awesome day. Um, so yeah, the seventh through the 11th for sure this year, if I only had five to work with. What if you had just pick one day, one single day, it's your favorite day of the rut. Well, maybe not from a hunting standpoint, but my birthday is November 5th. So I love to get out in my, on my birthday. Um, that's kind of symbol, you know, symbolic for me. That's the, that's the day I shot shipwreck and never killed him. Um, that's the day that I had one, one year, 2013, I think it was, I had an encounter with a buck I call Megatron, a giant eight pointer on my birthday. Uh, he, he just stood at 60 yards, just a little too close. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of people overlook, and I think even us talking about it is the tail end of the rut after, after that peak breeding of the 14th, 15th and 16th, let's say. I had a day on November 24th one year where I was sitting in the tree stand and a really one of those crisp, cold mornings. And it's where I, I, I shot, I rattled in a buck, uh, a four year old, uh, probably 170 shot him, hit him, didn't, didn't kill him. And then I saw two other mature bucks that morning cruising for does. So the rut wasn't over yet, but you know, maybe all the does were bred, but the scent was still in the air and the bucks were cruising. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. There's a lot of people that attest to that, especially the biggest, oldest bucks. Right. Tend to keep on being, getting at it that end part of November. I know Don Higgins is a guy that has, has praised that time of year consistently. And just like you, I've had some really good days in that time period too. Um, right. I think November 24th for me too, I saw, I rattled in jawbreaker a few years ago on that night. So Here's a question for you before we move on. Let's say you had, let's say you had uh, two weeks and you didn't have to take those two weeks off or even five days. And statistically, let's say there's a lot of deer movement on, you know, we're using peak breeding as 14th, 15th, and 16th. Let's say the 9th, the 10th, and the 11th, which is a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you go back to work on the top breeding days. And then come back and hunt the 17th, 18th, and maybe, uh, and then that that's your five days. So you get you get some weekends to play with, but you're out of the tree during that lockdown period. Do you think that would be smart, ever? So it's an interesting idea, and it makes sense. But here's one thing that I think about the rut, and I don't know. This is like totally, I don't know, hypothesis here. Right. But I feel like with the rut, you've got you're gonna have days where it's dead and you're gonna have days where it's hot. Even in the right. best times of year. Even even if you've got a you know, great slew of days from the seventh to the twelfth or whatever it is, 
you know, there's going to be some days where it's on. There's going to be some days where it's off wherever it is that you're hunting. It's like, you know, it's at least for me, I've never hunted a rut where it's like just constant rutting action every day for five days in a row or something like that. You know, there's always like that day or maybe those two days where it's really on. And then you've had these other couple days where it's like, meh. So my only fear with hunting a couple days and then taking a few days off and then hunting a couple days is that you could hit the wrong days. There is a certain level of safety in hunting a set of consecutive days during the rut. I feel I'm pretty darn confident if I hunt five straight days during the rut, at least one, maybe two of those days will be a good day. I I, I can almost guarantee it. Like if I hunt those five days, I'm going to have some kind of good activity. But if I were to pick two days or three days and then have a break and then pick another two or something like that, you get to this point where there's, there's a chance you could pick the wrong two days and then you know, then you're not right. hunting when those couple good days might have been, and then you're in the next kudu you, you miss. So I don't know. That's if it was me and you had the opportunity to do straight days, I think I'd I think I'd almost rather hunt straight through, even if that meant I was hunting during the hypothetical lockdown, just right. because, just because of that reason, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Right. What do you think? I don't know. I just it was kind of a random question that I I just asked myself just now while we were, while we were chit chatting about it, I don't know what I'd do. I think I'm, I'd be in agreement with you where, you know, and, and plus the more time you can focus on an area, you can see the movement, you can make your, uh, decision because there's only so much a trail camera can tell you if you're running trail cameras, you know, being in the stand and observing an area is, will give you more information and you'll be able to see the sign if there is any popping up. You'll be able to see the uh, uh, scrapes. You'll be able to see the deer movement, which a trail camera isn't going to show all of that. Right, right. In-person observation is right. so important. Right. All right, well, real quick here, we do need to pause briefly to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of this podcast. And again today, I want to remind you all about Sitka's Diverge Photo Contest that is going on right now. Sitka is running this contest through December 15th in which they're looking for unique, raw, creative photos from your hunting adventures. Prizes for this contest include Sitka hats and hunting apparel, GoPros, the chance to be published in print, and an all-expenses-paid trip to Bozeman, Montana. So if you think you have a photo worth throwing into the ring, be sure to submit your pictures by using the hashtag Diverge5, that's the number 5, on Instagram or visit sitkagear.com slash diverge. And also, even if you're not going to submit a photo into the contest, still go to that website because there you can see all the current entries into the contest so far, and there are some awesome photos. So again, visit sitkagear.com slash diverge to submit your photo or to check out the other great shots that are already on there. So with that said, back to the show. All right, tell me this. What is your layout, your hypothetical game plan? What right. is your rut hunt strategy and like calendar of strategy going to look like? Walk me through what you think you're going to be doing here. Well, depending on when this actually launches, I will have already had my trail cameras. Like right now, I I have my trail cameras in certain places where I think the does are going to start running through, but not necessarily in where the the major all the major pinch points are or the um where the scrapes are going to pop up quite yet because it's right about this time every year where certain scrapes show up on my farm i want to have trail cameras over that 
and this weekend when I go hunt, well, this weekend, it's like I said, or like Mark said, we're recording this earlier. So I'm setting up for the rut previous to that. So when you're listening to this, I will have all my trail cameras over travel corridors, fence crossings, and pinch points, right? So I'm going to be able, in my, in the way I look at it is I'm going to be covering a lot of deer movement through those, through those trail cameras. Now I'm going to do what a lot of guys do, I think, and that's go into my historically good spots first. And then I'm going to check my trail cameras on and off throughout those, those days. And then I will see if they're, you know, Hey, last night I had a buck, a big buck in this area. I'm going in tonight and I'll check those trail cameras on a regular basis throughout that, that period. And that will allow me to, you know, start to in a way pattern where a lot of this movement is, and it may not even be a big buck. But if you see a doe come through and in the next 15 minutes you see three, four smaller bucks, you might want to get into that area because there's a chance that that doe that came in front of those bucks is hot or is about ready to breed or coming into in, coming into estrus. So I'll probably hunt my good stands first and then have my backup running gun sets to where I'm starting to see a majority of the movement based off either – visual from the stand or my trail cameras. So your trail cameras elaborate on this a little bit for me. So you've got them all, you're going to have them all set up on that first day of your rut vacation. When you head in there, do you go and check them all like in one afternoon, like go out there and just hit all of your camera locations to tell you, to inform you of what to do once you start hunting, or are you not checking them till you actually go out there and start hunting? Well, the very first day that I, so Typically for me, I'm not getting there until an evening, right? So I'm not going to go check all my trail cameras right before I hunt. I'm going to hunt, let the morning, the, then I'll hunt the next morning. As that morning gets, you know, later, I'll get down, I'll make a trail camera run, go switch some cards out. Um, and I'm not going to do it every day, but I will, uh, I will check them more often you know, those first three weeks in November than I would, let's say the last week of October or the very last week of November, just because, you know, for me, it's sad to say, but my season is probably very close to over once my rut vacation is over because then I've, you know, I've put a lot of pressure on the family. I'm not able to get out and hunt as much late season. So I'm going, I'm going to be very aggressive with checking my trail cameras. Um, and for the most part, my trail cameras are in some very easy to access places minus one or two. And those I won't check un, until I go over there or actually hunt that spot. Yep. Tell me about your stand locations. You said that you're going to go to your best rut locations probably first. Do you have a couple right. that you can lay out for us in detail what your best rut sets are going to be for this year? Right. All right. So I have two, two stand locations and one area that – and I say area because it's not one particular stand location because I literally have to bounce back and forth in this area quite a bit throughout the, the rut just to get on to what, um, where these, uh, deer are crossing this fence at 
and it changes every year, right? So I have one is your standard halfway down a giant ridge, and it is a cruise. It is a, a cruising travel corridor uh, spot where every year I've hunted this this uh, stand, it's one of those where I'm not I'm not getting a ton of late, you know, like prime time, 4 p.m. type of activity, but I'm getting a lot of, you know, from daylight to 11 o'clock in the morning activity. And uh, it's deer coming off the food, uh, bucks cruising these ridges back and forth all night looking for does. And uh, it's just a, it's a it's your standard south wind blows right over top of me down into a valley below. And I just, there are a lot of deer that come through. I can see across the valley to other ridges that allows me to potentially rattle or call, um, a buck in. So it's not only in a good travel corridor, but it's a good observation stand as well. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. What's your next one? My next one is it's a standard river bottom set. Uh, I'm set up downwind. I'm going to be set up downwind of a really thick, nasty bedding area that remember me talking about last year that, uh, they logged it. Yes. They're done logging. Right. So that has since grown up and I haven't, I actually, I haven't been in there since, uh, the first week of September when I actually got to set my tree stand there or last weekend in August. So, I, I don't know. It was thick and nasty when I went there to set my stand. So as the green stuff starts to die, there's a whole bunch of this tall brown grass and these, it's almost like cattails, but it's not really cattails. Um, it's tall. It's, it's, you can break them real easy. And, uh, they love in previous years to get in there. And now you have all these treetops that are down in there as well. Just makes awesome bedding. Right. So this is where that Gordon Bombay buck is living. Mm, and, nice. uh, in, in this area somewhere, I have trail camera pictures, no daylight pictures of him, even during the rut. So it's a great place to start because I always see good mature bucks there. However, I'm not, uh, it's, it's a starting point for me. I will sit there. It's, it, it can be good, but if I see a deer crossing the river or crossing the creek, I'm going to move closer to that, that area based off of this starting point. So it sounds like that's more of a, a doe bedding area kind of, right? Is that right? Like mm-hmm. you're focusing on that cause there's deer bedded there. Yep. It's a, it's a standard doe bedding area. It is, there is three different fields that surround this doe bedding area and a crick that runs right in between it. Have we, so, sh- have we shed hunting there? Have I been with you shed hunting down there? I think that day that you found Mark Kenyon's side, yeah. we remember we, we took that walk all the way, all the way to the back and, yep. uh, we, uh, we walked that and, um, didn't I find a dead, didn't I find a dead head down there? Yep. You did. Okay. Yep. yep you did. I know exactly what so you're talking about. in, in that area and then it, it's flat and then it goes up into where the, the, it starts to get hilly and it gets into the ridges and, and, uh, all that stuff. But that over the years has, has been where I've seen the highest number. And I'm not saying in one day, but the highest number of bucks in one rut vacation. That's where I shot, uh, the buck that's hanging on my wall. 
Um, that's where I've seen a giant, I mean, over the years since I've hunted this, this piece, that is where a majority of the deer hang out last year. I think it was different because they logged it, but this year they did not, there hasn't been any floods and historically the, they cruise up and down this Creek bank going from one doe bedding area to the next on the next property. And it's just a river system and it, it just, it's, it, it's money when the time's right. Can I be honest with you? Yeah. Like I'm getting excited just hearing you talk I, about that. <laughs> I know. I know. It sounds it, awesome. It's one of those things where, you know, like you and, and anybody that I've ever had come shed hunt with me on the, on these pieces, they look at it and they go, Oh my God. Have you ever walked into the very first time I ever found out about this property? You walk into a new place and you get this eerie feeling that this could be one of the best hunting spots you've ever hunted. I definitely know, you know the feeling it, when you go into a spot and you're like, Oh, this oh, is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of trails, like really thick, high traveled trails. Then you have the, on top of that, you have the, Oh man, it, it just, there's not ever a lot of sign there, but there's not going to be because the bucks don't live there. They are, there, there's some scrapes along this, this field edge that they travel, but the does come in and out of this bedding, depending on the wind direction. And they will just, they just chill in there and the bucks come, they bump them out and they go chase them. And then, oh, anyway, I'm getting shivers. <laughs> <laughs> now here's a question I have for you. Yeah. Over the years, you have typically preferred not to hunt all day. Right. What's your thought process on that this year? Are you going to try it more or are you not? Quite yeah. Are reasons why? Right. So last year I tried it twice. And I think I told you at one time the guy started burning uh, leaves. And another right. the other time was a guy started chainsawing and decided, you know, I'm going to get down and go someplace else. You know, the, the other – this year I think I'm going to get down, especially in that bedding area that I talked to you about just now. That is an all-day sit location, and even some of those ridgetop stuff that I've that I've had. But historically, on on my other stands that are staging areas or transition areas between bedding and uh, food, they typically don't. I mean, my trail cameras tell me they're not traveling that during the middle of the day. They're out in those river bottoms. They're out in that rit on those ridges. Mm -hmm. And then when they intercept a doe group going from their bedding area to the food source, that is like coming back. If I can access uh, that on a morning hunt uh, or an evening hunt coming in and out, I'm able to, you know, cut them off going one way or the other. I'm not hunting a food, uh, food source and I'm not hunting the bedding area. So it's, it's their, their standard travel corridor stands. Yeah. How about you? Well, uh, how about me on, on which thing? Like the all day sit or the no. stands? Stands. So like right now you're daydreaming about a couple stands, right? You know, it's every day you're looking at a map, you, you're going, man, I, this, I want to be in this stand right now. Mm -hmm. What, what do those stands look like? All right. I got a couple on the outline for you. There is one on my main Michigan farm that is a spot I've, I've never hunted during the rut, 
but it's a spot where I've always wanted to hunt during the rut. So I, I actually hung a stand in there like five years ago and then just never came back to it. Cause the one downside to the stand is that it's hard to access. Um, right. you've got to cross fields to get to it. And that's obviously not a good thing to do, but this year I'm going to do it during the rut. I'm going to ride a bike in to get to it so that I can hopefully, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to ride a bike in like two to two and a half hours before daylight so that I get in there super, super early. So yes, there's a chance I might spook a deer off one of these bean fields, but I'm hoping that by going early enough and by riding a bike in that I will hopefully minimize that impact. I think, you know, from what I've seen and heard, I think that deer won't react quite as negatively to a bike as a person walking along. You know, they're not quite as used to that and it'll be faster and quieter and all those things. So when I get one of those really good rut days, good cold weather when I'm hunting here in Michigan, I'm going to take that bike in super early and and go along the back edge of this field. And then I have to go and it's a long route back around this swamp. But basically what this stand is, is it is on the, just inside some timber on the back side of me is a massive CRP field, a great big, thick CRP field that nobody's allowed to hunt on the front side of me is a narrow, a narrow stretch of high ground that separates that big CRP field from a great big swamp. And I've got deer bedded just along the edge of this high ground right in front of me and inside the swamp. And then there's sometimes deer bedded back in that CRP that will be behind me. And what I believe is happening is that there's going to be bucks cruising along the edge of that swamp on that high ground, trying to wind anything that's bedded in these bedding areas to the west of me. So when I've got a west wind, I'm going to head in there, sit this ridge, kind of, it's not really a ridge, it's just a small area of high ground and just sit that all day. And if I can do that like two days in a row or a couple days on some of those best rut days, I just have to believe that something's going to come cruising through there. So that is what I think is one of my top rut spots because it's downwind of a really good doe bedding area and in a good kind of travel corridor because it's just basically the only easy way for a buck to get from point a to point b without sloshing through the middle of that swamp which they're not going to do typically or being out in the open in some of these fields so that's one um another set i'm excited about and it's a stand that you can only hunt on the very best wind but it's in ohio on my lease down there and it's in a spot that you would normally not want to hunt because it's low it's in a creek bottom and you've got a bunch of ridges that all come down and all drop down in this one bottom point And on just about any wind direction, your wind swirls in there and you get busted. But if you have a southeast wind, for whatever reason, there's this creek, the way this creek exits this little bottom, it opens up into a field that goes down to your, um, that goes down to your southeast. So let me, excuse me, you need a northeast wind. So you need this wind. No, I'm sorry. God, I'm getting this all wrong. It's... (laughs) I'm trying to picture this in my head. It's a northwest wind that would blow your wind down to the southeast out behind you. For yeah. whatever reason, you you get a consistent wind when you have that direction. So with that wind, I sneak into this bottom. It's down in, like I said, a creek bottom. There's a little kind of grassy, brushy field down there next to this bottom. And then on either side of you, you've got two big ridge lines, which are covered with doe bedding areas. And then there's three different points that come down off of those ridges and all converge right at a creek crossing right next to this tree stand. So it's in a perfect travel corridor. It's back in the cover, so deer are moving there all the time, and it's kind of right in between where these three travel routes that connect doe bedding areas all come together. I've hunted that stand, um, I've hunted that property four years now, 
and I've only sat that tree stand three times total ever. Okay. And on every single one of those, except for one, the one time I didn't see a shooter, it was because I tried to hunt it on one of those bad wind days because I was like thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll be okay. And it didn't. It was just swirling. So I left after an hour. But all the other times I hunted it, we saw shooter bucks. And then one day my buddy got a shot at one. It's it's a foolproof set almost. If you have that one wind, you can get away with it. It's during the rut. There's going to be activity. Right. It's dynamite. Right. That's one. And then, you know, the one other one is a new property in Michigan. Like I said, I've hunted a couple new spots in Michigan I have permission on. And this one is pounded with other hunters. There's other hunters in this property, but there's big, big swamp land on this piece. And there's a kind of similar to that one property I was mentioning in the beginning where there's a piece of high ground that cuts between a swamp and some other thick timber. That's kind of what I have here. And it just seems like that perfect bedding and transition area that if you sat in there all day for a couple of days during the rut, something would happen. I, I love being in thick cover close to doe bedding. Those are probably my favorite spots during the rut, at least in these higher pressure hunting pressure spots. Like there's not as much activity in out in like an open funnel, like where you've got a little strip of timber between two big chunks of timber. That stuff works, but yeah. In Michigan, I don't see as much daylight activity in that kind of spot just because these deer are getting so much pressure. But if I can get into one of these really nasty cover areas up close to a doe bedding area, usually those are the better spots I find for the rut here in Michigan. So right. those are a couple of spots that I'm excited about. Um, I don't know. I'm ready to get in one of those trees. I have not hunted any of those trees yet this year, of course. I've been saving all those spots for the rut. Um, right. And then, you know, of course, also – for evening sits on my main Michigan farm, those couple food plots I have in there, they're usually pretty good, even during the rut. During the evening, you know, you go where the does go, and in the evenings when the does do come out, you know, before they get overly harassed, at least what I've seen, I don't know about you, but usually earlier in the rut, there's still a lot of activity on my food plots, and then, like, yep. once you get to the peak of the rut, or, you know, maybe 10, 12, 13 days into it, these does have been harassed so much, they tend to not be as much on the food plots. Um, but for whatever reason, like November 1st, Halloween, November 1st, November 2nd on this farm, those spots are just a deer, I don't know, just chaos. Like the, I remember one day I went out there to the spot at like 3 o'clock or something. I had to work during the day or something. And I got out, and I got out to that tree stand at like 2 or 3, and while I'm climbing to the tree stand, a big mature 8-pointer come running through the food plot, walk right underneath my tree stand before I could get a shot. And then I had oh two mature bucks fighting about 100 yards away within an hour. And then I saw, I think, a total of 14 bucks that night in just wow. a couple hours um, just because there's a lot of does hitting that food plot, and all these bucks are coming in and check it out. Um, so I don't know. It's, it, I'm excited. You go, go where the does go or be in a right. travel corridor and, and stay there as long as you possibly can. Right. And I think it's hard to go wrong. Right. And I think that's what, for me over the years, I have, you know, I put, I put some high, some high, I set some high goals for myself every year. Right. Just try to shoot a four year old or older. And I always have had a season where and, and granted, I, I don't I'm kind of blessed, right? I have some kind of pressure on my property, whether it's from other non hunters like guys working on the farm or other hunters. I, I have I run into those every year. But if I hunt consistently and hard enough throughout that vacation, I have always ran in or had an encounter within 
And what I mean by encounter, I mean something that's not within shooting distance, but I saw them. It's, you know, within my sight. I didn't need binoculars. I, every year I've had an encounter with, with a, a mature buck. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think the rut is something that because it's such, because it's such an exciting time of year, like we put so much like you, like you, right. There's a lot of pressure on you to make it happen during the rut. Cause basically that's your best chance all year. And then once that's done, your chances are, you know, nil or going down right. quickly. So we all put right. a lot of pressure on ourselves during the rut to kill a buck. So because of that, and because of the high expectations we have for it, I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. You know, we like, we put so much pressure into thinking about, Oh, what about this and this and this and that and this. And if I were, I I've tried to keep telling myself to keep it simple, you know, just right. be out there as long as you possibly can be in an area. If it doesn't, if it doesn't do one of those two things, if it's not, you know, somewhere near a doe bedding area, or if it's not in a good travel corridor connecting them, where you are going to catch a cruising buck. You know, there's no reason to be there if it's not one of those two things, as far as I'm right. concerned, at least, or somewhere around does, um, because that's it, right? I mean, deer are either a buck is either trying to get to a doe or checking for does. They're doing one of those two right. things. And if you always try to run your thoughts through that filter, does this tree stand take into account one of these two things? I think if you do that, you can kind of rest easy. As long as you fit one of those two categories, you're going to be okay. Right. Right. Now I got, I got a question for you that kind of just popped up into my head. Do you feel that there are days in the rut where let's say maybe it's warm or maybe, you know, you were, you really want to get into, um, a said stand, you know, a set stand, but the wind direction is wrong in it. Do you, do you believe in maybe taking a day, like a, a, a hunt off and maybe observing from, uh, your truck or, going and doing trail cameras, uh, one evening or one morning or, or sleeping in to get, uh, or, you know, sleeping in to get, uh, maybe a little bit of energy back because I don't know about you. There's been times in the past where, you know, you're hunting 16 days straight or five days, all day hunts that can get very tiring. Right. Yeah. So do you believe in, in maybe taking a, a day, you know, a hunt off and either regrouping or, you know, going to check trail cameras for some more information. So I definitely, I've definitely been in that position and I have done that sometimes where just, you're so burnt out, you need a morning or something like that, because if you're out there and, but you're not really there, you know, if you're sitting in the tree, but you are just not in it mentally, right. um, you could blow your opportunities then. So right. if you are in a spot like that physically or mentally, where you just need that break. I don't think you should feel bad about doing that. Um, but I will tell you, I've become more and more, um, a believer in the fact that any day, any condition during that time period of November, it can happen. So I'm trying to get myself to be even more crazy about it and just like, just be out there. Yes. There's, I, I think observation stands and that kind of stuff. It's, that is important, especially if you're hunting a new property. Um, and especially, you know, early season, late season. But during the rut, I think if it's a property you know, and if you have a pretty good idea of what's going on, I'd say be out there, be in the best spots you can be, be in a position you can kill. Because if you only have five days or something during the rut, you, know, you, you have to just be out there 
to have the opportunity. You need to be right. in a tree to have an opportunity to, to get that shot. Um, I would say, obviously things will be different if it's a brand new property because you want to kind of learn things and push your way in there. If it's a, if it's a rut trip to a public piece or something, you know, it might make sense to start in the edges and move your way in or do some intel, some stuff like that. But for me this year, I'm going to be in that in that tree stand no matter what, as, as best right. as I possibly can be, just because I, I just keep on being reminded too often that good things can happen during the rut, even with bad conditions, even on the days you don't think yep. it's going to happen. And I think the biggest challenge of hunting during the rut for me is keeping your mental health up. So that's why I would say if your mental health is not where it needs to be, then take a little time because I think one of the biggest challenges is just keeping your state of mind in a place where you are ready for that five seconds. It's going to determine whether or not you kill that buck this year. You know, I mean, during the right. rut, things happen so, so fast. And if you're not paying attention or you're getting down on yourself and you know, because of that, you're not really with it or you're not looking all around you or you're not listening or whatever it is. I found when I'm tired or when I'm not feeling very confident or when I'm getting sick of it or whatever, when those things happen, that's when I'm not attuned to what's happening around me. And that's when mistakes get made. Um, if that happens to happen to you when your one chance of the year happens, well, you are SOL. Right. So right. I think you got to balance those two things. If if you find yourself really losing your mental edge, I guess I think it is okay to get back into it. But if you can keep that mental edge, then just push through. Because, I mean, you know, last year with Glenn, it was a perfect example of that. I had hunted, you know, seven or eight, nine days or something without seeing a shooter. It had been kind of lousy weather in Iowa. I bailed out of there, went to Ohio, um, wasn't seeing anything. Like, I was hunting a full 14 hours, and I saw one deer the whole day um, for, like, four days. So I was down, and my mental edge was was slipping. But I made a switch, moved to a new stand, and... You know, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, here's the number one buck I've been after hunting for three years. Here he is at 20 yards. And if I hadn't happened to be paying attention, you know, he would have spooked. He would have stepped out of the tree. I would have been dicking around on my phone or something or turning or whatever it is. And he spooked and there goes my season. Um, right. So I think that is like this huge, you know, not often talked about part about hunting the rut that can make or break everything. Gotcha. Yeah, I... Uh... I don't know. I'm the, I like to grind it out. Like, you know, that your word, man, grind it. I've, I have had two kids. I know what it's like to be extremely tired, but still be able to function. Um, and that's just like hunting is just like having a newborn at, at times. And it's, it's after it's crazy to say, but after you have kids hunting for 16 days straight is easy. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> hey, I got I got one more question. Do we yeah. have time for one more question? Well, we got plenty of time. Okay, good. I want to talk about I want to ask you about what your thoughts are on access. And specifically, you know, you mentioned you have a stand that is only good for a specific wind. Now, is that because of the access to that stand or is it because of the wind direction while you're in the stand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. So in that specific instance, it's not access. It's like just when you are sitting there, 
because of the fact you're down in this bottom and there's all this terrain around you, the wind on most wind directions just spins around and around and around. So any deer right. coming towards you ends up winding you, um, which just does not work. But I will say, um, different than at other points of the year, I am personally, just me personally, I'm willing to get a little bit riskier with my wind direction, typically right. during the rut. And I will sacrifice, like, if I have to get to a spot, if the conditions are right, you know, great cold front, I want to be in my best stand, you know, whatever there's all intel that points to that being the right spot to hunt. But my wind's not perfect for access or my wind's not great, not exactly how I'd like it to be. I'm much more willing to push the limits on that during the rut um, right. because I think you're able to get away with more. I think right. – if you spook a buck on one day, there's still a chance if you're in like a travel court or something, there's going to be other deer that come through. Um, so I think you can get away with more at this time of year. I'm not as obsessive about keeping the pressure quite as low as I am at every other time of the year. What about you? Right. I always, you know, especially that river bottom stand that I talked about, I know it can be good with multiple wind directions. But in the past, I've always accessed it from – let's say one specific direction with the wind in my face because it sits on a property line, right? So I need to figure out ways to access my stands. And I have done this, uh, from different, you know, different directions so I can hunt that stand on multiple winds, right? So I have a stand that I can hunt on a Northwest. I have, and I can hunt, I can basically hunt this stand on every, every direction except a Northeast wind. I can hunt it on a straight East. I can hunt it on a straight North, but I can't hunt it on a Northeast wind. So that, that gives me a lot, lot of opportunity, right? Yeah. But if I'm accessing and it's always good in the morning, but if I'm accessing it from the east that stand from the east i am walking through deer to get to that stand yeah and i think that's something you can get away with you know like once or something like that yeah, but i once, feel like if, yeah. you, if you do it you like four or five days in a row right that's that's when i think even during the rut that you know if you consistently are blowing all the does out of a spot when you're trying to access i think that's when you start seeing that impact right do you think right. so i i agree i just i, th I think i guess what i'm getting at is to, to these guys who think that if it's if it's the wrong wind, you shouldn't hunt the, the stand, look at your access first. And I know that we've talked with uh, um, Bill Winky, and he's wrote some articles about almost how he approaches it, not where's the best stand location, but what's the best access route to get yeah. to that. And um, I'm sure you can point out that, uh, that episode, but that's one thing that's been an eye-opener for me, right? Yeah. Just because the stand is the stand's in a good spot because there's deer activity there, why not try to hunt it in a different wind direction? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. You know, kind of alluding to kind of along these lines, another big thing. This is this is probably the biggest mistake I think I've ever met when it comes that I've ever made related to the rut. Um, is that I have left the hot spot mm -hmm. because of prior plans, and I will never do that again if I can at all help it. So. A couple times. So for me, right, I travel to hunt. So lots right. of times I'll be hunting here in Michigan a couple days, and then I'll plan on, okay, November 7th, I'm going to Ohio or whatever. Right. So I've had a couple different years where that was the thing, where I, I had like a, you know, sometime that second week in November or somewhere in there I was going to go to Ohio. So I was hunting in Michigan up until that point, 
And I had one of those awesome days where there's does and estrus in the area. Bucks are after them. I'm having some good encounters. And, like, this is it. And for whatever reason, I think one year is because I was going to Iowa. And I was like, ah, I got to get to Iowa. I was planning on going on this day. So I left. I left the hot moment in Michigan, and I went to Iowa. I regretted it. I had another time where same thing. It was, it was on in Michigan, and because of my previous commitments and plans, I decided to switch it up and stick with my original plan and go to Ohio or whatever. And I just think, you know, like we talked about earlier, the rut is not this consistent period of great greatness. There's going to be these bursts of great activity. And if you happen to come upon that burst of great activity in this specific location or this specific stand or this region of your property or whatever, milk it. Do not bail on that until you know that that's not going on anymore because it's not going to last and it will not necessarily be there when you come back. Um, at least in my opinion, I think stick with that hot hand while it's happening um, and don't try to overthink things. Like I'm I'm not going to be afraid to hunt the same stand multiple days in a row anymore. Sometimes I overthink it. I'm like, I don't want to pressure this too much. But if it's on, stick with it um, is my, my new kind of motto during the rut. I'm going to push things a little bit more when you've got that special magic happening because it's just not guaranteed that it's going to stick around. When you've got right. that hot dough, you got to take advantage of it. So that, I think, is one of my biggest changes that I, or one of my big lessons learned that I'm trying to adjust to. What about you? I guess first, what do you think about that? Well, I think I had a stand one year where I, I hunted it morning and night five days in a row. And – or not – I shouldn't say that stand, but one CRP field based on the wind direction, I hunted one, two, three. I had three points in this CRP field where shipwreck was coming out, and it was on that it was on that fifth day that I ended up shooting him. Yeah. So it wasn't the same stand, but it was an area based off wind direction, and I I hunted the shit out of it, and. <laughs> And I ultimately got the shot at him. I didn't kill him, but it was, it was worth it. Right. I saw multiple, I had, I had multiple encounters with him, uh, in that five day period. And I saw multiple other bucks. I saw bucks chasing does and it was just a matter of time, you know, and you think about it like this, it's a matter of time between point a, the deer and point B you until they, they pass, right? You're going to, you're either going to figure it out or it's almost like dumb luck, right? Where you it just is going to happen if you, if you stay thorough and you, you grind it out. Yeah. And it's, you know, worst case scenario, you hunt several more or you hunt, you know, in one of those days, the magic stops and then you say, okay, so now I've pushed as far as I can go and then you can relocate. But, but why not keep trying when you are still seeing good activity? Right. Um, you know, you won't know until you hunt that one day and sure, maybe you have one bad day and then you adjust, but, um, it would really suck to not hunt there and then check your camera the next day. And there's three shooters that ran by your stand. Um, right. <laughs> so I have a folder in my, uh, I don't know if I have it anymore, but I used to have it called a day late file <laughs> where it was, it was all the bucks that came through this scrape that I used to hunt on a different piece of property after my uh, rut vacation was over. So it was like, uh, you know, 160 class 10 pointer or 140 class eight, uh, all these mature bucks coming through using this scrape the day while I, that first day back to work. 
and I'd go check that camera in December or something. And it was like, Hey, you should have, uh, you should have, uh, stayed here one more day. You know, all those reasons to quit your job. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. I, uh, yeah. Trail camera. I got a qu- blessing and a curse. Yeah. I got another question for you. Yeah. While you're in Ohio, are you going to have your wife check your trail cameras in Michigan and send them <laughs> back to you? No, because okay. I do not want to put more miles on my truck than I need to. <laughs> and that potentially could have that happen. But I will tell you with this new wireless trail camera I have, it probably will give me some heartburn if I start seeing yeah. bucks showing up on that. But I'm lucky, uh, I'm lucky my, my uh, wireless camera doesn't, doesn't get reception on my main farm. It's too far <laughs> out in the country. I just, oh, man, I, I would, I would be fired mm-hmm. from my, from my marriage and from my job. Yeah. I, I have a new morning routine now that I think my wife is already catching on to. First thing I do is roll over, pull out my cell phone and check the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and she's already yelling at me like during prime time in the evening, like we're watching a TV show on Netflix or something. And I'm pulling up my phone and just checking. And she's like, God, you are so annoying. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's one downfall of that. But, uh, I don't know, man, I'm excited. It's an amazing time of year. And I think, uh, you know, this is, this is when, this is when dreams come true. Right. And I'll tell you, I'll I'll tell you one more thing when it comes to this time of year, at least, and I think it's, it's the case for you and me, for me, especially in Michigan, when you've got the gun season opening on the 15th and for you, because of other commitments, you know, the rut is kind of like the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter. It's like the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl for a lot of us. Right. You've got your best opportunity at achieving all your hopes and dreams of the year. And it's also like that time period where it's now or never for a lot right. of us. So don't be afraid to throw the Hail Mary when you're right. getting into that time period. Like you got to give it everything you have. You got to leave it all on the field. I mean, I don't know how many other sports cliches there are, but basically think of any good sports cliche and apply it to your week of rut hunting or whatever it is you have, because this is when, this is when you make it happen. So don't be afraid to swing for the fences. Right. Yep. I am, uh, like my mouth is watering right now. I want to go, (laughs) I want to go out and check some trail cameras or, or do something else. But, um, you know, that, that old saying, and this is, this is what I've learned over the years, the, you know, the young bull, and the old bull, they're standing at the top of the hill and the young bull's like, Hey, let's go down there and bang all them cows and the, or bang, bang one of them cows. And the old bull's like, how about we walk down and bang them all? So <laughs> if you can, if you can relate that into my hunting season, I think I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm walking into this season very, you know, lightly, no pressure to my, to my best stands. And then when the time's right, I'm going to bang them all, if that makes sense. <laughs> let's let's avoid bestiality for your rut vacation, please. None of that. And uh, just just shoot one good buck, all right? <laughs> and on that note, on that me. note, you literally were saying you're going to bang them all, Dan. <laughs> hey, you, but you took it there. I know. And I think we need to just shut this thing down. Yeah, it's, this is, it's, it's officially over. Good luck to everybody. Yes. Good luck to everybody. Shoot straight. Enjoy these next few days or weeks of hunting. This is this is what it's all about. This is what we wait all year for. So enjoy it. And, sh- and I don't know. Get at it. <laughs> and just remember, I mean, 
have fun. Yes. This isn't a competition. Absolutely. Enjoy yourself. Wear your safety harnesses. And with that, we will shut this down. And now, as mentioned earlier, here's our bonus interview with Buddy Pylon regarding ozonics and using ozone to manage human odor. All right, Buddy. So to kick things off, so many people have questions about ozonics because it's different. It's really different than just about anything else out there. So even though ozonics has been around for a number of years now, can you just kick this off by helping us understand again exactly how does ozonics work? How does ozone help us deal with scent issues? Okay, well, that's a that's a great question, Mark. And, uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll work to try to, to make that answer as simple as possible. But um, basically, um, ozone, for lack of a better term, and actually this is a term that Tim Kent from a uh, used to work for Elite Archery, had given me, but ozone is a predatory molecule. That's the, the best way to think about that. Basically, what, what you do is you take an oxygen molecule, and we use high-voltage electricity to tear that oxygen molecule or fragment that oxygen molecule, O2, in half. And those two parts want to attach to something, or in this case, like I said, like a predator, they want to attack other molecules to get back to the regular state and when they attach to another oxygen molecule this fragment it becomes o3 and it becomes ozone which is which is a powerful oxidant and anytime it it literally just searches out other things to attach to to get back to its normal state and when it attaches to something and in this case like you referred to human odor it literally begins to grab that molecule and 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 unravel it so every time a, an, o, an O3 molecule attaches to a portion of that scent molecule, which is bacteria, it, it begins to destroy and unravel. So in a perfect sense, enough ozone molecules will attach to that single human molecule and literally destroy it and it's gone. Or as it unravels it, it alters it to the point that it's no longer recognizable as human odor to uh, a big game animal. Or, or any animal for that that um, matter. So essentially, it's essentially what ozonics is doing is it is grabbing hold of all of our human scent that's going down towards wherever this deer might be, and it just it's changing those scent molecules so that, like you said, it's unrecognizable. That that's all that's happening here, right? Well, there's two things happening. Again, remember, so so hunting with ozone is about time and concentration. If you have enough concentrated ozone for a long enough time. In a perfect world, every bit of your odor is completely destroyed, not just altered. But like I said, like a ozone as a predatory molecule means that it, it is much smaller than other molecules out there. So a human scent odor would be much larger. And it would take more than one ozone molecule to completely destroy it. But that one ozone molecule would up begin the process of unraveling at a, at a molecular level that's that what makes up that as as human and so ideally if you imagine your hand take your hand and put five your four fingers and your thumb and that's human odor and it leaves you and as it encounters a cloud of ozone imagine one single ozone molecule attaching to your pinky and at that point that molecule is no longer human so if it gets through your cloud of ozone but only one ozone molecule attacked it it, it gets to an animal that deer's not going to recognize it as human. It, they may smell something, 
They may get curious. They, they may look around, but they don't see that as human. Now, if you have five ozone molecules attached to your four fingers and that thumb, then you can imagine that completely destroys that human molecule and nothing gets through to the animal. So they wouldn't even react at all. That's the perfect world. And on occasion, or, or so the combination of those two, you're altering human odor and you're destroying human odor, but both of those reduce human odor. So if something, because the wind swirls, gets through to that animal, he typically uses his nose to range distance or the intensity of the odor he gets. And, and at that point, he goes, oh, wait, well, that hunter is 400 yards away when in reality you're 22 yards away and, and you've already made the decision to, to uh, take the animal or pass on the animal. Yeah, that can make all the difference in the world. Now, another Absolutely. thing, another thing I understand about ozonics from my own experiences and from what I've, you know, seen and learned over the years is that it's it's important how you set it up in the field, right? I've heard the term "chase the wind." Can you elaborate on the right way to set up and use your unit in the field if you actually have one and you're trying it out? Absolutely. In fact, that's the most critical piece. You know, there's still a lot of people that will say. Um, hey, if it works, and, and I would say to that is it's, it's kind of like the reference to gravity. You, you may argue with the principle of gravity, but if you jump off the roof, it, gravity will show you that it works every time. And, <laughs> and ozone, ozone is the same way. It is, at a molecular level, human odor in the presence of enough ozone is always destroyed. So what it comes down to, the critical piece is hunter application. I can give you, Mark, the best bow in the world, but if you shoot it upside down, you're not going to be very effective. And the hunting with ozone, no different. So the term you use, chase the wind, deer don't smell you. Deer smell what you release into the air. And so when you finally grasp that concept, it's very simple, but it, it's hard to really think of that because we, we, we never we always associated deer with busting us, but the fact is they're busting your odor that's been released in the scent stream downwind. So you always want to position your unit in such a way to deliver the maximum amount of ozone and, and position it in such a way also to keep that ozone in the area as long as possible. So that's the, the term chase the wind. If the wind moves on you, obviously at that point, if you're not, if you're not delivering ozone to the downwind scent stream, then there's a lot, there's a much higher chance of your odor getting through. So a critical piece of this is always to assess the wind direction, determine where that's at, take your unit and place it eight to 12 inches above you in a, in a moderate wind. I'm, you know, three to three to 12, 13 miles an hour with an HR 200, the HR 300, because of the more ozone it makes will give you um, a higher threshold here, but position your unit, make sure it's pointed downwind and about at about a 30 degree angle. As the wind picks up, you're going to change or steepen that angle of delivery on your unit until finally you're at a 90 degree angle. And in, and in super high winds where, where for a 200, where it would push up over 13, 14 miles an hour, I would literally pull the unit and the entire mounting system and pull it as close to me um, as I possibly could without interfering with drawing my bow um, in, in that situation. Because again, time and concentration. I need to keep as much ozone in the downwind stream as close to me to encounter all the odor that's leaving my body and either be altered, reduced, and destroyed. Yeah, wow. That, that's great advice, and some of that is even new to me a little bit, and it makes a lot of sense the, when how that wind 
might impact the delivery of the ozone to your scent stream and wanting to adjust it based on speed and velocity and things like that. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I have to ask, and I understand the answer to this question myself, but people always ask me, is ozone safe? And so I think we, we, mm-hmm. need, to, we need to, you know, hear what your thoughts are on that or the explanation, understanding, because I think that's something that people are always curious about. So can you help us understand that? Sure. So um, I, I would always start off to kind of help um, people put context to that. So um, if I were to take you and lock you in a closet and pump pure oxygen in that closet, what we breathe every day to stay alive, but I pump it full of pure oxygen, at some point it would reach a toxic level. Um, ozone's no different. However, our units are designed, again, if used correctly and in the proper application, um, you would never reach that toxic level. And, and so, but now let's back up and talk about from a pure hunting standpoint. Uh, the first thing I would always say when somebody says, oh man, I, is it safe? If you're breathing ozone for a prolonged period of time, the simple answer is that you do not have the unit set up correctly. You're not hunting correctly with it. Just like I talked about earlier with a, your bow upside down, you, you have your setup wrong. If you catch a whiff of it intermittently, that may mean the, the wind swirled. But if you're breathing it constantly, that means the wind's completely changed and you need to chase the wind. Because where do I need ozone? Always downwind of me. Whether I'm in a ground blind setup, a hard blind setup, an open air environment, if I'm breathing ozone for a prolonged period of time, I have the setup wrong. Now, if you, the first thing you would experience, um, and, and so as a, as a model check, for, say a guy's excited and he doesn't even realize he's breathing it, but you would get scratchy eyes and a dry throat, and that and dry, scratchy throat. Turn the unit off, get some fresh air. But again, I go back to the, the first part. If you're breathing it for more than a, a second or two on occasion, that means you have it set up wrong. And it, that is an indicator to go, okay, what, what, what's the wind doing here? And same thing, again, with the ground blinds. There's a lot of people that will get in and they pump the blind full of ozone, and that's a waste of your ozone and not the most effective application of the technology. In a ground blind situation, you, you would uh, – take the opportunity to create airflow like a chimney in your house. If, if I set my chimney and my flue correctly, no smoke comes into my living room and it all goes out of the house. Same thing in any type of blind situation. Create airflow and hyperosinate the exit because that's where your odor is going. That's where you need your ozone and you, don't, you, you never breathe ozone at all. So in that situation, you're, you're talking about opening one window downwind of me so that I do have air coming out the back of my blind, but I've got the ozone, the ozonics, like you said, hyper-ozonating that I think you had mentioned. And I think it, so it takes care of all that scent. So I open it up to create that flow. Is that right? Correct. So, so if the wind direction is right to left in my ground blind, I'm going to take and, and crack a window up high on the right-hand side. Ideally, I would crack a window on the lower left side. And I, at that point, I'm able to adjust or restrict airflow. And then I would position my unit in such a way that where the exit is in that blind, the airflow exit, that's where I pump every bit of my ozone. And so every, in every, whether you're climbing a tree stand, whether you're climbing in a ground blind, the first thing you should always do is determine wind direction and, and then go, okay, where's the downwind direction? That's where my odor will be going. That's where the animals will smell me. That's where I need my ozone. 
And with that, we will wrap this bonus segment up. If you're someone who's been curious about Ozonix or Ozone, hopefully this was helpful. So in closing, a few more updates. First, be sure to listen to our RUT radio episode this week that just came out yesterday as we have some new RUT reports from states like New York, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, Illinois, and more. And we cover a lot of interesting things related to what kind of activity is happening right now, what kind of tactics are working, and what we can be looking forward to in the coming days. Moving on, we also need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for tuning in today. Get out there in a tree, enjoy the rut, good luck hunting, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.